The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We've had a great time this summer in a series on progressive sanctification. We have been talking throughout this summer about personal holiness, about uh, being people who are being conformed to the image of Christ and being uh, increasingly made more like Him. Uh, we have preached 12 messages on this topic. We have uh, come to our final one, and this is message number 13. Uh, this will be our final one in this series on sanctification. In a sense, this series could just keep on going. Uh, there's a sense in which we could just keep talking about all kinds of topics related to personal holiness and personal sanctification. Uh, we could talk about parenting and the tongue and the work ethic and thoughts and all kinds of other things that relate to our personal sanctification. But I want to conclude our series this summer on looking at a sanctified attitude toward money, toward money. This is not, in case you're wondering, give more money to the church sermon. Uh, that, that's the critique leveled against churches. This is not that sermon. In fact, I want you to know, I, have, I don't think I've ever preached on money since I've been here, maybe, maybe once a long time ago, but we are exceedingly grateful for your giving to this church and the generosity of our people. That, that, the only motivation here in talking about this is because it directly relates to our personal sanctification. In other words, how you handle money shows maybe more about your true spiritual condition than maybe anything else. If you really want to know where someone is at spiritually, just look at their time and look at their money. Look at their checkbook and their calendar. Look at how they spend their time and look at how they use their resources. And that will give you a pretty good window into what a person is like spiritually. You'll see what they value. You'll see what they esteem. You'll see what they treasure. You'll see, see what they prize and, and what they cherish and what is most important to them. You, you begin to see the priorities of a person's life as you look at how they allocate their resources. It may be one of the best windows into someone's spiritual condition. It's one of the greatest indexes of your spiritual health. It is one of the greatest barometers of where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. And so it's no wonder that the Bible has a lot to say about money. There's 2,000 passages in the Bible related to money and possessions. 16 of Christ's parables, almost half of them, 16 of the 38, deal with money or possessions. Christ taught more about money than he did heaven and hell combined. That's interesting. That shows us something about the importance of this very topic. Because what we do with the things God has given to us is very important. It's critically important as a reflection of your spiritual condition. It's important we address this because I think if we're all honest, we would admit to the fact that we are naturally inclined to accumulating wealth. All of us. We, we are naturally inclined to, to things and stuff and possessions. One writer has said human beings are naturally thing-oriented. 
we're naturally bent towards wanting more things, more stuff, more money, bigger house, greater portfolio. We're prone to, to want more, to covet what others have. We're, we're prone to discontentment. We wish we had more, and the lure of materialism is strong for every person, even believers. You have to wrestle with this. And I have to wrestle with this. And each one of us has to wrestle with, with how we handle the resources that God has given to us. I remember a number of years ago, I was preaching at a, a church uh, retreat. They had a weekend conference down in Southern California. One of my good friends from seminary invited my wife and I to fly down from Washington down to Southern California to Orange County. And, and uh, we spent a wonderful weekend with his church family and, his, and he and his wife and in talking about their ministry, I asked him, what is one of the greatest challenges pastoring in Orange County? And without a doubt, he said materialism. One of the most affluent areas in the country, there in Orange County. And he says, one of the things that we have to battle with most is the issue of materialism because unbelievers in that state don't recognize their need for a Lord or a Savior. And believers in that condition oftentimes struggle with the lure of it. It's something that we all have to face. And that's why the health, wealth, prosperity movement is so prevalent today. That, that's why the, this movement has gained traction in our country and around the world because it appeals to people's natural desire for things and stuff. And unfortunately, that movement caters to it under the guise of God's blessing. One of the most destructive heresies floating around the church today is that very movement. Let me be clear. God is not opposed to us having stuff. God is not opposed to us having money. He's not opposed to you in any way having uh, investments or saving money or accumulating wealth or planning for the future. In fact, you are commanded to do some of that. You are urged to do some of that because it's biblical and it's honoring to the Lord and it's wise to, to be able to plan for the future and save up. Proverbs 13 verse 11 says, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. There's wisdom in storing up for the future, and God blesses people in many cases with wealth and possessions. It's not bad. But the issue for us as believers is we need to have a sanctified attitude toward it. And as believers, we, we want to be those who, who don't build our life around those things. We want to use our, our money and our resources and all that God has given us for His kingdom to advance His kingdom and, and to give to His purposes and to, to build up and store up treasures in heaven. That, that's the mark of a godly person. Because there's a number of things that we as believers understand. We understand, first of all, that God owns everything. You understand that, right? Right? Everything you have is owned by God. You say, well, I, I paid off my car. Well, that's wonderful. God owns it. He says, I paid off my house. That's even greater. It's not yours. It's God's. Everything you own, every possession of yours, all your money, everything in the bank, everything that is in your financial portfolio, it all belongs to God, and so we don't really own any of it. The Bible says, Psalm 24, says, the earth is the Lord's. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 1, the, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. 
Psalm 50, verse 10 says, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 104, verse 24 says, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. God owns every single thing, including everything that you own. It's all the Lord's. I love what John Wesley, who when he learned that his house burned down, he simply said, no, the Lord's house burned down. That's one less responsibility for me. That's a good perspective. And I've said a number of times when our cars break down, you know, I just say, that's not how I would spend my money, God, but that's how you want to spend your money. That's fine. It helps salve that frustration over broken vehicles. So we understand the fact that God owns everything. We also understand the fact that all riches come from God, that because He owns everything, we as believers understand the fact that all that we have and all the riches that we have come from Him. When He gives us those things and He blesses us with those things, it may be because you've been a hard worker and you've been diligent and you've been wise. That's all wonderful things, but ultimately you have those things because God has given them to you. It's His gift to you. It's His kindness to you. It's His grace to you that He has blessed you with the things that you have. Proverbs 10 verse 22 says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. You have money in your bank account? You got some in savings? It's because God has been so good to you. God has blessed you with those riches. We understand that. So we understand that God owns everything. We also understand that all riches come from God. And because of that, we understand that we are to be good stewards of that which God has provided us. Everything He's given to us is is given to us on loan, and He wants us to be good managers, good stewards of what He's entrusted to us. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 shows this very clearly, that God has entrusted us with all of the material possessions and finances and resources that we have to use wisely for His purposes, and we're to be good managers of that. We also understand the importance of contentment. Contentment. Living within our means, living within the resources God has provided us. Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. By the way, you understand that verse 13, I can do all things who strengthens me, is in the context of contentment. So if you want to write it on your face for a football game, that's great, but it's about contentment. It's about contentment. You can be content with the resources God has given to you. So these are things that we understand as believers. These are things that that we know and are convinced of uh, when we come to an attitude towards our money. And we also understand that there are some serious warnings in Scripture about the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish, harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you understand those things? 
I want to take you to Matthew chapter 6 this morning because I believe verses 19 to 24 give us one of the greatest passages in the Bible on this issue of material possessions and wealth and money and how we are to think about those things. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. I would invite you to follow along as I read these verses. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You'll recognize that this passage comes within the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, one of the five great discourses of Christ in the book of Matthew. And in this great sermon, perhaps the, sermon that, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, Christ is addressing the external righteousness of the Pharisees. He knows that the people that he came to, to minister to, many of them were Pharisaical in their religious commitment, and that it was all external. It was just this external self-righteousness that was kind of based on works and deeds, and they had propped themselves up thinking that they were the highest level of righteousness. And Jesus comes along, look back in chapter 5, Verse 20, look what he says. This is the theme verse of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 20, he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? The Pharisees were at the highest level, supposedly, of human righteousness, and Christ comes along and says, uh, you've actually got to have a higher righteousness if you're going to make it into heaven. In other words, you've got to have a true righteousness that doesn't come from yourself. You can't work yourself to righteousness. You can't do enough good things. You can't do enough good religious accomplishments. You can't merit God's favor through your acts and through your works. It has to be wholly and entirely a work of God in your heart that true righteousness is granted to you from the inside, not forced from the outside. That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. That's why in this chapter, chapter 5, Christ lists a number of things where he addresses their foolish external righteousness and addresses the internal need. So look at that. Let me just give you a sample of what he's doing here. Look in chapter 5, verse 21. There's this repeated mantra of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So let me just give you some examples of this. Chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Oh, that's great. You haven't killed anybody. But have you gotten angry? Look over in chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, that's great. You've not ever engaged in a physical relationship with someone not your spouse. That's wonderful. But have you looked lustfully? That's a heart issue. 
And he continues on with this theme, chapter 5, verse 31. Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. divorce. It was said that. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see what he's doing? He's going after the heart. He's saying, you Pharisees, you've done this whole external thing, and you've set up this external uh, system of righteousness, and you've missed the heart. Same thing in verses 33 and 34, same thing in verses 38 and 39, same thing in verses 43 and 44. And as we come to chapter 6, he does the same thing, but he shifts the the words a little bit. Instead of saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he says, do not, but do this. Don't do this, but do this. Let me give you an example. Go over to chapter 6, verse 2. 6, verse 2, he says, so when you give to the poor, he says, do not sound a trumpet, before you, as the hypocrites do. Verse 3, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You see what he's doing? Don't do this. This this external righteousness, but instead do this from the heart. Same thing in verse 5. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And then he says in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your inner room. He says, don't deal with just the externals. Make sure your heart is engaged. That's the evidence of true righteousness. Same thing in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need, but pray like this. And you can see the pattern down in verses 16 and 17. Do not fast like they do, but fast this way. It's a whole issue of addressing the heart. And as we come to verses 19 and 24 to 24, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, which the Pharisees were doing, and instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. It's a heart issue. It's a worship issue. So I want to take you through these verses, and I want you to notice that in verses 19 and 20, he deals with two treasures, and in verses uh, 22 to 23, he deals with two kinds of eyes, and then in verse 24, he deals with two kinds of masters, and so that's going to be our outline. We're going to deal, first of all, with the two treasures that he, he addresses, and then we're going to deal with the two eyes that he addresses, and then we're going to deal with the two masters that he addresses, all in the context of money and material possessions. So let me give you three of these, three instructions. First, number one, is you need to save the right treasure. You need to save the right treasure. And go back again to chapter 6, verse 19. He says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Two kinds of treasure. There's an earthly treasure and there's a heavenly treasure. And negatively, he says, don't store up the earthly treasure and instead store up the heavenly treasure because the Christ knows that the location of your treasure will determine its long-term value. Let me say that again. Christ here is stating the fact that, he, that the location of your treasure will determine its long-term value. Where you place your treasure will determine whether it's eternal or temporary. So let's look at these commands. First, he gives us a negative one. Verse 19, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up. Lay up. 
It's the word in Greek, thesorizo, from the noun thesaurus. Do you know what a thesaurus is? It's a treasury of words. It's a treasury of idioms. It's a place or a storehouse of words. And he uses that very verb here to say, he's referring to not storing up or treasuring up the things upon this earth. He's dealing with the issue of covetousness and being stingy and hoarding and and saving up for yourself all the prosperity of this world and forgetting what really matters. Christ is dealing here with the people who get their main satisfaction from the things of this world, who place their hope and their confidence in the things of this world. That's what he's dealing with, and he's warning those who confine their hopes and interests only to the things of this world. We know he's talking about those things because he calls them treasures on earth, and then he goes to define how temporary they are. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Here's the point. Those things are all temporary. Those things are all subject to loss. They're all subject to decay and deterioration and all the things of this world that that the world is placing their confidence in and their hope in and their beliefs in, it's all temporary. And it's subject to loss and decay. And he cites here three examples of that, moths, rust, and thieves. Why moths? Because if you have woolen clothing you understand the fact that those need to belong in a cedar chest. Because if they're not, those little moths are going to lay eggs and those little eggs are going to hatch and those little things that come out are going to love your clothes made of wool and are going to eat them. Your clothes are subject to decay. And other things are subject to rust. Rust can destroy. It's actually the word eating. It's subject to eating. And it could refer to metals that corrode and are eaten away by this corrosive process. But more likely, he's actually referring to crops that, that could be eaten by insects or grain that is stored somewhere that could be eaten by mice and rodents. And even that kind of stuff is, is subject to being eaten away. Moths destroy earthly things. Rust destroys earthly things. Thieves break in and steal. The word break in is the word that means to dig through. doesn't make a lot of sense to our Western ears, but when you live in that culture in that day and your house is made of mud, and the thief can dig in through that mud and take your stuff, they can break into your house just by digging through it. All these things, all these processes represent the fact that earthly things are subject to decay and nothing we own is completely safe from destruction or theft. I mean, think about it. Just look at your life and look at all that is in your life and all the earthly possessions and think about how transitory and temporary and subject to loss those things are. Food gets moldy clothes wear out, your TVs break, your cars need repair, your houses begin to leak, your gold tarnishes. Stock markets crash. It's all temporary. In fact, even if you can protect it, even if you can protect it all safe for a time, what happens at the end of your life? First Timothy 6, 7 says, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it either. 
Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Hold your finger here in Matthew 6. Go over to Luke chapter 12, and we, we get a parable here by Christ. He begins to say something very similar, and he, he tells a story. Jesus was the master storyteller, and he uses this parable of the, the rich fool to illustrate this very fact. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, he says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Here's someone who approaches him and says, Jesus, uh, you need to go after my family member and my brother and say, give him my half. Give him my part of it. Give him my possessions. Give him my inheritance. Verse 14, and Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? Then he said to him, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I love that. Your life does not consist of your possessions. The things you own, the stuff that you have, the portfolios that you look at on a regular basis, your life is not in those things. Jesus goes on and he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Oh, soul, you've, been, you've laid up goods for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. What a tragedy! The tragedy was not in the fact that the man made money. That's not the problem. The, the, the tragedy is not in the fact that he worked hard and built a successful business. The man is not in trouble because he wanted to maybe expand his business. That, that's not the problem. The problem with this man is that his economic security, security and his dependence was on himself and what he gathered and what he stored up. One writer says the folly was that the man had been so totally consumed in preparing for his temporal comfort that he had given no thought to preparing for his eternal well-being. What a tragedy. Go back to Matthew 6. This, this is the danger that Jesus is warning about. He's warning about the challenge that confronts all of our hearts when we want to naturally accumulate wealth. It's in our DNA. It's part of us. Even as a believer, we have to wrestle against the flesh that so desperately wants to collect items and material possessions. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. You understand that? Your money has wings. It's kind of strange. And one day it's going to fly away. James chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. It's not going to last. It's all temporary. 
So Jesus in verse 19 says, don't store up for yourself those things. Don't store up. Don't love those things. Don't be greedy. Don't, don't make that the source of your life. And look at the contrast. So that's the negative side. Here, here's the positive side. Look at verse 20. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Here's the flip side. On the one hand, don't store up for yourself material possessions that are subject to decay and destruction and loss and theft. On the other hand, you as a believer ought to be a person who is making an impact in eternity by storing up for yourself treasures in heaven which will not be subject to moths and rust and thieves and all other destructive processes that are in effect on this side of heaven. These are the Items he's referring to that have eternal value. Those heavenly possessions that will never be destroyed. You say, like what? What is he talking about here? What are, what are these treasures in heaven that he's referring to that we are commanded to lay up? Is it just money? I think that's part of it, but I think there's actually a clue in this text as to what he's talking about. And it's in the word reward. Follow with me. Watch this. Go to chapter 6, verse 18, and you can see towards the end of that verse the word reward. And then if you go up to chapter 6, verse 6, you can see at the end of that verse the word reward. And if you go up to chapter 6, verse 4, at the end of that verse, you can see the word reward. And if you go to the end of chapter 5 and verse 6, there is a word reward. And if you go back to chapter 5, verse 12, there is this word reward. Five or six times in the context, and in the previous chapter, he's speaking of a heavenly reward or a heavenly treasure. So here's the question. Are these instructions then on the things that we should be giving ourselves to that would be enabling us to store up treasures in heaven? And I think they are. So let me give you some examples. You're in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Look what he says. If you want to be a person who is storing up treasures in heaven... You ought to be willing to suffer some persecution. Chapter 5, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do you store up treasures in heaven? You suffer persecution. Look at the end of chapter 5, verse 43. You want to store up treasures in heaven? Love your enemies. Verse 43 of chapter 5 says, You've heard of that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes the sun to, to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what? reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. You want to store up treasures in heaven? Love your enemies. The people who hate you, love them. Go over to chapter 6. What else brings us reward in heaven? Chapter 6, verse 2, generous giving. The very thing that we're talking about in the context of chapter 6. Generous giving, sacrificial giving, being open-handed with your finances and your resources. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. So when you give to the poor... 
Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they may be honored by them. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You want to store up treasures in heaven? Give liberally, sacrificially to others, to the church, to the Lord. What else? Chapter 6, verse 5. You want to store up treasures in heaven? Be a man or a woman of prayer. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But I say to you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You want a heaven reward? Be a godly young man or woman or older young man or woman and give yourself to prayer. Godly. Christ-centered, God-word prayer. And if you want to know what that looks like, just read the next few verses, verses 9 through 13, the disciples' prayer. That stores up treasures in heaven. One more, chapter 6, verse 16. How else do you store up treasures in heaven? Fasting, humble fasting. When you fast, verse 16, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men than by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see it? Christ, in the very context of this passage, is telling us the very things that will enable us to be those who store up treasures in heaven. Prayer, fasting, giving, loving your enemies, suffering persecution. Moths can't touch those. Rust can't touch that. Thieves can't steal that. This revolutionizes how we think about our resources, how we think about our money. It makes us think about what we are putting our resources toward. It helps us reconsider our perspective. What perspective do you have? Do you, do you have an earthly perspective? And are your eyes so focused on the horizon before you that, that all you see is kind of this life and the things of this life in your bank account and your material possessions and your house and your car and all that goes into it? Is that where your eyes are focused or do you have an eternal perspective? Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. I love that. Do, do you think your riches are certain? Do you think that something couldn't happen and take them away? They're completely uncertain, but God is certain. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Life indeed is not in this world. Life indeed is bound up in treasures in heaven. So why is this so important? Look at verse 21. Back in Matthew 6, 21. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beloved, this is a heart issue. This is a heart issue. This is a worship issue. Jesus here is telling us that where you choose to place your treasure tells something about you. Something very, very important about you. The place that you choose to store up what you value most shows what your values are deep, deep down. We might even say that money is a window into your heart. The treasure follows the heart. It's not the other way around. The heart doesn't follow the treasure. The treasure follows the heart. Wherever your heart is, whatever your heart is longing for, the things that you're loving, what you value, what you prize, what you cherish, what you treasure, those things then dictate where your resources are allocated. It was Jesus who once said, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And we might say here, out of the money, the heart speaks. Where you put your money, where you put your resources, what you do with material possessions reveals the priorities of your heart. I was thinking this week about some people in my life that I've interacted with that have demonstrated kind of the extremes in these two kinds of treasures. One person I know who says he's a believer doesn't give to the Lord, the church, has no interest in using his finances to further the kingdom of God, demeans his wife and how she uses the finances to care for their family, cheap, tight-fisted, reveals his heart. And, and then on the opposite extreme, there's the man who a year and a half ago, when I was at Shepherd's Conference, learned that we would be a TES campus, said, that is tremendous. I am so behind this ministry and behind training men for ministry in the context of the church. I, I'm so committed to the Expositor Seminary. I'm going to give you $10,000 to make sure that your campus is set up with the equipment it needs. And then six months later, an 85-year-old woman who I met in Florida, says, I love TES. I'm so blessed by that ministry. Here's here's $5,000 to help put in whatever place you need and whatever infrastructure you need, put that in place in your church. What a contrast. What a contrast that shows the heart. So I ask you, how about you? Does, Does your heart reflect kingdom priorities in the use of your finances. Number two, you've got to save the right treasure, Jesus says, but you've also got to sustain the right vision. You've got to sustain the right vision. And he moves from two treasures in verses 19 and 20 to two eyes in verses 22 and 23. Let me read those verses. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. 
you know how important vision is. For a number of years, I taught pilots in the Air Force about physiological hazards of flying, and uh, one of the lessons that we spent some time on was teaching about the priority of your visual field in the aircraft and thinking about how visual illusions can affect your flight and your ability to maintain control of that aircraft. Very, very important to be aware of that because the visual system is the most important system physically. And Jesus here is using a similar analogy. He's saying there's a spiritual vision that is absolutely critical to how you deal with this issue in your life, and it can go one of two ways. It can be good or bad. Your vision, he says, is kind of like a window. You know what the windows are like in your home when they're clear and when they're clean and when you make your kids actually get the dust rags out and Windex and you wipe them all down, they're, they're clean. You can see through and the light comes in. And then there's stuff that gets on the windows and it gets filthy and dirty and there's a film and they're frosted or they're colored or they're really dirty or really grimy or they crack. And the light doesn't come in as well. That's what Jesus means here when he says that your eye is the lamp of the body. Your eye is the window that lets light into your body. It's your spiritual eye, not a a physical eye here, but a spiritual eye, your heart. The heart is the, the eye of your soul, and the heart of the soul is the only channel through which spiritual realities can shine. And so the condition of your spiritual eye or the condition of your spiritual heart greatly affects your convictions about money and possessions. He says there's two kinds of eyes. Verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. So here's one eye. One eye, uh, kind of eye for the spiritual sense is clear. It's, it's singular. It's, it's healthy. It's able to see clearly. This is not the person who's got one eye on God and one eye on their financial portfolio. This is the person who is singularly focused on God trusting Him for those resources, committed to eternal riches rather than earthly riches. This is the generous person. This is the sacrificial person. This is the person who gives liberally with their, with their resources and uses them to further God's kingdom. And then in contrast to that is the person in verse 23. He says, but if your eye is bad, your whole eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is referring to the person who can't see straight spiritually because their eye is clouded with greed and their eye is clouded with with a desire for more stuff and more finances and more resources and selfishness and covetousness and materialism. This person can't see straight. Beloved, the way you look at use your money is a barometer of your spiritual condition. And it shows you whether the eye of your heart is clear or whether the eye of your heart is cloudy. So I ask you, what is your spiritual sight like? When it comes to this very issue, are you singular in your vision and does your use of money reflect kingdom priorities or is your spiritual vision clouded by a love for money and a desire for material possessions? You've got to save the right treasure. You've got to sustain the right vision. Number three, we'll end with this. You need to serve the right master. Look at 
you need to serve the right master. We, we might ultimately boil everything we've said so far down to this last point. If you're going to have a sanctified attitude toward money, you've got to serve the right master. Look at verse 24. No one, mark it, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and wealth. So we move from two treasures in verses 19 to 21 to two eyes in verses 22 to 23, now to two masters or two lords here in verse 24. And at the end of verse 24, he says, you have two options. You can serve God or you can serve wealth, but you cannot serve God and wealth. Maybe your version says you cannot serve God and mammon. That's the Greek term for wealth or money or property. You can't serve both. It's impossible. You cannot worship both. And the the imagery here is that of a slave and a master. In fact, the very terms that he uses, masters or lords and serve, service is the word doulos, where we get our word slave. And so he's referring here to kind of the slavery analogy. And if you can picture that in your mind, there's no such thing as a part-time obligation to a master for a slave. There's no such thing as half-hearted commitment to your boss as a slave. No, it's all entirely full-time service to a full-time master. It is absolutely impossible for a slave to give themselves half-heartedly to a master. And Jesus says the same thing. You can't serve two gods. You can't serve your checkbook and your wallet and God at the same time. There's no division of allegiance. There's no division of worship. Either you hate the one, verse 24, and love the other, or you hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both. You can either trust in riches and not trust in God, or you can trust in God but not in riches. You can trust in your possessions and not trust in God, or you can trust in God but not in your possessions. It's either one or the other. There's no such thing as this half-hearted, half-measure, in-between kind of thing where you love and kind of hate both of them at the same time. It's impossible. Jesus is so clear on that. He's stark. He says you either hate the one and love the other or you love the one and hate the other, period. That's it. Either God is served with a single devotion or he is not served at all. Bottom line comes down to understanding the worth of these objects. On the one hand, one is infinitely worthy. God himself is infinitely worthy of our dedication and our service and our worship and our resources. And on the other hand, on the flip side, one is essentially worthless. Oh, you've got to buy bread. You've got to pay your rent. You've got to buy gifts at Christmas. I get that. But in reality, material possessions have no eternal value. So ultimately, it's a matter of worship. So I ask you, what is, what is your heart set on? Are you kind of footing your foot in both worlds? Are you open-handed or tight-fisted? Calvin said it this way. He says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. So, I ask you, do riches hold the dominion of your heart? Or does the Lord Jesus Christ 
hold the dominion of your heart? And is it reflected in your allocation of his resources? Let me give you some questions to consider as we close. Question number one, are you a careful steward of your personal finances? Are you a good steward, a good manager of the resources God has entrusted to you? Whatever he's given to you, not wanting more, whatever God has given you, are you a careful steward of that? Number two, do you faithfully, joyfully, and sacrificially give to the Lord? Wherever, church, others, missionaries, do you faithfully, joyfully, and sacrificially give to the Lord? Number three, are you easily consumed with worry and frustration over unforeseen financial trials? Oftentimes, unforeseen financial trials reveal our true heart's belief in this area. How do you handle those? Are you consumed with them? Do they keep you up at night? Do you worry about them? Are you anxious about those things? Are you consumed with worry and frustration over the financial struggles and issues that God brings into your life? Number four, are you attracted to get-rich-quick schemes? Are you attracted to get-rich-quick schemes where you think, oh, I can just, if I could get that, if I could just win that million, man, I'd be solving all my problems. If you do, just give 10% to the church. <laughs> I'm kidding. Number five, how much do you talk about your material possessions and portfolios? How much time do you talk about it? How much mental energy do you put in, into, into dealing with your material possessions and your portfolios? How much of it does, does it consume your attention, your affections, your time on the internet, your surfing, your, your evaluating your budgets, your looking at your possessions and your portfolios? How much time do you talk and think and, and wrestle through and meditate on these kinds of things? Number six, does receiving gifts thrill you more than giving them? What brings you more joy? Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. What brings you more joy? Is the joy of, of getting and adding to your bank account and getting more stuff and putting that thing on the shelf and, and whatever, is it that or is it the joy of giving liberally and seeing God bless? Very clear. And so we trust and pray that these truths from God's Word will bear fruit in your life, your family, your marriages. And we thank the Lord for the privilege of working through these issues on sanctification together over the summer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for just such clear teaching from Your Word. You've never stuttered or stumbled or had a speech impediment when it comes to even such practical issues as this. We thank you for this church. We thank you so much for the maturity and this body and their giving, Lord, and their liberality and their sacrificial care for one another. We see it so much. But Lord, if there's times when we're tight-fisted, when we choose to be more like the world than what you would have us be. We pray that you will pry our fingers open. And we pray that you will help us and enable us to ensure that we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven rather than 
treasures on this earth which have no value. Thank you for how you blessed us materially. Thank you for how you blessed us financially. We never want to take that for granted. And Lord, we pray that you will give us opportunities to serve others and extend your kingdom in the resources that you have entrusted to us. And we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.